This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, this is Dr. Margaret Rutherford, and welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I began Self Work over four and a half years ago in order to extend the walls of my practice to those of you that were already interested in psychological phenomenon, emotional issues, trauma, whatever, maybe you're in therapy and would be interested in hearing from another therapist or psychologist, to those of you who've just been diagnosed with something and you're looking for answers, or you're having a relationship issue that you don't understand, but also to a third group, to those of you who might say you'd never darken the door of a therapist, but you're just curious enough or unhappy enough to listen to self-work. Welcome to all of you. In the third of a loose series on careers that kill, today we're talking to Dr. Shauna Springer, or Doc Springer, who's the author of Warrior, How to Support Those Who Protect Us. There are 20 veteran suicides every day in this country. It's not a veteran problem. As Doc Springer says, it's an American problem. She also says the idea that for a veteran, their pain is the fox in their gut, which is based on a Spartan tale, which eats them alive but they never let anyone see that they're rotting from the inside. She's very down-to-earth and is known for her brilliant and moving work with first responders and veterans. I found both her and her book really fascinating. A little sneak peek. Interestingly enough, it's not what warriors or first responders see or hear or smell that leads them to depression and suicide. It's actually shame or guilt. And, of course, they have a greater capacity than most, since their gun knowledge is so astute, or as they would say, their firearm knowledge, and many continue to own a firearm without realizing that it become a weapon, not of protection, but of self-destruction. We'll talk about that as well. To tell you a little more about Doc Springer, she's a best-selling author, frequently requested keynote speaker, and one of the world's leading experts on psychological trauma, military transition, suicide prevention, and close relationships. So you can see why on this Memorial Day weekend, I wanted to feature her work. She's a Harvard graduate who's become a trusted doc to our nation's military warfighters. And she navigates different cultures with exceptional agility. And this was something that I found so true that I talked to her a lot about. She's frequently sourced by the media for uniquely perceptive insights on trauma recovery, post-traumatic growth, psychological health, and her work has been featured in multiple media outlets, CNN, NPR, NBC, CBS, Forbes, Business Insider, Military.com, Coffee or Die Magazine, Gun Talk Radio, and on and on and on. So, I welcome Doc Springer. I cannot wait for you to listen in to our conversation on not only depression and post-traumatic stress disorder, but the invisible wounds of our veterans that are killing them. And as always, what they can do about it. Before we get to today's interview, I wanted to introduce one of our sponsors to you, BetterHelp. Doc Springer is going to be talking a lot about getting really good therapy for your veterans, for your military, for your first responders. But many people are finding BetterHelp can be there for you. So take a listen, and there's a special offer from BetterHelp and from me. Mm -hmm. 
BetterHelp has now been a sponsor of Self Work for a few months, and I've been hearing how pleased you are with their services. I couldn't be more excited about that, as by now you know I'm a huge believer myself in the power of therapy. What is BetterHelp? It's an online therapy service that has earned the number one ranking for the quality of their service to their consumers. When you contact them, you are offered several different licensed professional therapists to choose from, all that have been vetted by BetterHelp. You can have sessions via video, text, or phone. And I found, because of course I checked it out before recommending it to you, that each therapist was very available, literally a text away, and made some of the same therapeutic suggestions to me that I'd offer myself as a therapist. Here's an excerpt from a listener who wrote in, I'm a 23-year-old living in Brazil. I'm only writing this message in order to express my gratitude towards you and your podcast. Having anxiety disorder, I always felt like I needed therapy, but I was too anxious to start it. With self-work, not only I've learned some valuable insights about dealing with my condition, but also the basics of how therapy sessions work, which allowed me to finally get some courage to start it. With the coronavirus pandemic, I'd also been concerned about attending personal sessions, but then I learned about better help in your podcast, and it sounded just perfect for what I needed. I've been getting online counseling from BetterHelp for six weeks now, and I feel like it's been helping me a lot. That's just so wonderful to hear. And now, BetterHelp has a special offer for you. 10% off the first month of sessions if you use this link. Trybetterhelp.com slash selfwork. That's trybetterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash selfwork. I'm never more honored than hearing someone sought therapy after listening to selfwork. And if selfwork is helping you, Maybe better help is your next step. You know, Doc, I'm so, so honored to have you on Self Work. And as I just told you, I finished an interview with Danica Thomas, who suggested in the first place that we reach out to you on this Memorial Day special episode of Self Work. So thank you very much for being here. Thank you for having me, and Danica, thank you for suggesting this. I'm, I'm happy to be here today. Well, it's truly an honor. I read your book, and the clinician in me was nodding. The learner in me was like, oh, wow, I'd never thought about it like this, especially the part where you talk about adapting military language and military terminology and military strategy to actual therapeutic technique. I just thought that was incredible, and I was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to start with the analogy at the beginning of the book that says, well, you know what, maybe we should first start out by asking you, why are you called Doc? I think that would be a great place to start. Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah, so the name Doc is just, it's one of the biggest honors to me when veterans call me that because I know that it has real meaning for them. Um, and in my work, I came to understand that there's a difference between a doctor who is somebody who's worked really hard, you know, and, and gone through a lot of schooling and has a lot of assets, but a doctor and a doc are not the same thing. And a doctor can be a doc, but being a doc is really not about a degree. It's about your approach to practice and your capacity to build the trust so that you hear the roots of what is really going on for your patients. Hmm. What in your personal history, and I'm already deviating from what I said I was going to do, what in your personal history made you so interested in working with the military? It wasn't something I figured out in advance, only in retrospect. So all I knew really at the time that I started 
first working with military service members and their, their spouses was that it just felt like home to me. And I didn't understand why I didn't really evaluate that for a long time. And I'm on a walk with my sister. And I said, why do you think it is that I just connect so well with people who have served in the military? I didn't, you know, we aren't a military family. And she said, well, <laughs> mom and dad raised us like a one extended boot camp. Um, and she was right. It, it really, that conversation, I'll always remember it frozen in time because you know, the 5 a.m. runs in the morning around the track. We were, we were five years old, and, you know, they started us with uh, PT, physical therapy, or physical conditioning, you know, three times a week. And we would run in the um, so There were all these things that were just very much military-hype values that I, I've adopted. That's really interesting. I'm sitting here thinking about my own mother trying to get out at 5 o'clock. She was a true southern heels and hose kind of woman. She had to get on her makeup before 4.30 a.m. so nobody would see her without it. So we have very different backgrounds. So now I'll get back to what I said I was going to do. I wanted to start with the analogy at the beginning of the book because it's a thread that runs through the entire book. And if I can quote, hidden pain is like a fox in your gut. Now, this isn't the easiest analogy to hear, but I thought it was really provocative. Can you tell that story? Yeah. You know, first of all, I love the way you just said it. The way you just read it was spot on what I intended to say um, with that analogy. And actually, the original title of this book was going to be The Fox in Our Gut on Pain, Courage, and Love. And then I got some feedback from people that it was kind of a without the explanation I give in the book, kind of a gross-sounding concept. Maybe what does it even mean? But it's based on the boy of Sparta who puts a fox in his cloak and the fox starts to eat at his abdomen. And he sits there in plain view of lots of people around him, you know, fellow students and teachers, and doesn't even say a word about it. And he's, you know, eventually he drops over dead. And so there are so many precious people that we are losing and the reality is most of the time we don't always know how dangerous it is when they're in that um, crisis and so the fox in our gut is really that private pain that we defend and protect and hold to ourselves and the thing that if we don't address it will eat us alive and put us at great risk and so when you when you use that analogy with soldiers, with warriors, how do they respond to it? Well, it's, it's based on the Spartan culture, which is a very stoic culture. So it's aligned with their values and gives them a reason that makes sense to them as to why they would hold that fox in their gut to themselves. It's because they're taught, you know, soldier on and don't talk about your own problems. You just suck it up and you just move on. You don't You don't want to be a distraction to everybody else. So it helps them reduce the shame they feel in the sort of why would they do that in the first place. It also gives them a rationale when you can shift their understanding to this fox in a gut that you have is dangerous to you and it's dangerous to the cohesion of the brotherhood. And it's just an enemy. And it has a voice and it has a strategy, your demons, the voices of your demons, just the word they use for it. And if you understand that, you can get traction with mental warfare. That is a very empowering message for them. I can hear that loud and clear. 
In fact, it harkens back to something you said later, which um, what vets die for is what they would live to protect. In fact, you say that's the most important statement of the book. You know, when we think about post-traumatic stress disorder as being what happens to people when they come away from battle, you talk about, however, there are many, many more invisible wounds of war. And so I would love for you to talk about that again. Thank you. I love the question. And I might just broaden it a little bit to say that this year, you know, has been a year of trauma for all of us. Insights and Warrior, the reason I'm bringing forward a second edition is because the Insights and Warrior have a lot to teach us about how to navigate a time of trauma like this. I think um, many of us now understand at a personal cellular level what it feels like to be chronically faced with trauma. Um, And we're coming out of this year of trauma. Being taught to see each other as possible disease carriers, to be hypervigilant to an invisible threat, uh, to lose loved ones to COVID, suicide, or other causes, and have our grief cut off. Uh, these are all things that military service members and first responders have experienced for many years. And if there's any silver lining to this year, it's that we are all, I think, more collectively connected around the impact of trauma and how it can really biologically impact us in our bodies and how it can impact us in our spirits and and in, you know, the ways that we navigate life going forward. So that's my heart in this, is to take what I've learned from our warfighters who are exposed to extreme traumas and help us all to navigate this time um, of so much change and trauma. You know, what I had written down was that so much treatment, so much focus is on you know, what the soldiers see or what substances do they use or what medications they're on, or blah, blah. But you talk a lot about shame and guilt being the real crux of what treatment needs to be about. Yes, I do, because I think we're missing the things that I saw as most directly connected to mental health battles. Uh, we have this myth that it's the things warriors see and do in war the horrors of war that are the root of their deepest pain, that's not it. Um, I think we risk projecting that onto them because we are not trained to go to war. And so put into a war zone and see those horrifying things might be really traumatizing to to us if we're not trained that way. But to war fighters, they aren't necessarily the source of the trauma. And so it's really the, the guilt and the shame and um, these moral injuries, survivor guilt, grief. These things were more often at the root of suicide crises and attempts than the horrors of war or the narrative that mental health diagnoses or depression are the things that are most dangerous when it comes to suicide. I'm thinking about a patient I worked with a long time ago who basically grew up in the country And he was telling me about these things that had happened to him. One time he was riding a four-wheeler and his whole forehead got ripped off because he went under a roof or something. And me being a city girl, I was like, oh my gosh. And he was like, oh well, you know, stuff like that happened on the farm all the time. And it just made me think about what you said, what was part of his ordinary experience. And it was exposure to something that I didn't understand. 
So is it harder for warriors to actually reveal these things, or do they tend to get stuck in telling you the details of what they saw, or is that what they talk a lot about? I wonder if they have to trust the therapist a lot before they begin talking about something else, and you have to earn that trust as a therapist. And so is that something that you think people try to shock you with? telling you some of the things that they saw? It is for some people, definitely. You know, the first conversation we hear is not with any patient always going to be the truth that we need to understand. I'm sure you've had this experience too, but times, you know, the first conversation or the first disclosure is a test uh, to see whether we can be trusted to walk a valley with someone. Um, And so there is that, but there's also, in addition to being tested, I had worked with a number of civilian patients in a successful private practice before I worked with military service members, and they wanted to come see me. They showed up on time, happy to pay a lot of money to talk about the challenges in their lives, get some new insights. Um, Veteran patients, it was very different. And because I had worked with both populations, I had to ask myself, why is it that they seem to be scanning for any reason to never see me again? And then when I traced that idea back, I thought, well, who am I to them coming into this relationship? What experiences have they had with people like me in the military? Hmm. That's so interesting. Can you, can you talk a little bit about moral injury? Because that's a concept, again, that runs through the book. And I think it's so important for people to understand because I think when I saw it first, I thought, oh, oh, so they feel bad about something they did or something they saw. That was an assumption of mine. And that's what she's talking about. But that's not what you're talking about. It can be part of moral injury, though. You're not wrong. It's part of moral injury. But the early understandings of moral injury were, were more like those kinds of things that you said or did something or couldn't do something that was not aligned with your personal morality. In Warrior, I really talked about how I think we need to really expand our understanding of what moral injury is, because um, it doesn't always evolve a discrete act or decision or event, and a situation can conspire to morally injure people. Um, so, so let's say that um, you've lost battle buddies, brothers and sisters in arms, whether it's a training accident or combat suicide you've lost a number of irreplaceable people. And then you come out of the military and you struggle, like many people do. Very um, stressful and chaotic time where people often struggle and transition. What will happen is if you think about those people who have died that are no longer with us, you can go back and say, who am I that is worthy? And they never would have struggled like I'm struggling. They never would have yelled at their kids or had a drinking problem, not been able to hold down a job. And so when I talk about moral injury, it's this bigger concept of how as moral beings, we compare ourselves to the ghosts of those we lost. It's, it's such an important thing to think about all the warriors of all the areas in this statistic, because many of us uh, do think that, you know, the 20 veterans who died, they, you know, on average, are the veterans of modern conflicts, and we're not. And, you know, with Vietnam veterans, to give you one example, a lot of my Vietnam veterans would develop cancers, and their psychology around that was very different than civilians that I treated. 
civilians might say, well, you know, it was something I made a lifestyle decision about. I smoked, I drank, I whatever in some point in my life. And that's why I've got this cancer. Whereas my Vietnam veteran patients would tend to think, I think this is related to Agent Orange or some other, you know, environmental contaminant. And I felt like I had escaped from Vietnam. And I find out now it's come back and gotten me. Hmm. So rather than a warrior, is it they feel like a victim? Is that the right word? Is that a good word? Yeah, that I was a captive there. Oh, and captive. then I got free. It came to get me in the end. Okay, this is a bit of a loaded subject in this day and time, but I'd still like to go there. I want to talk about how the military feel about firearms. You made a huge point, which I'd never considered, that we in the civilian public do not understand how the military feel about firearms. And it's not everybody in the military. There are some of my patients that never wanted to touch a firearm again after their time in the military, but... For many of them, it's a matter of their identity to own, to control, to be um, given the trust of our society to wield their firearms for protective reasons in the service of all of us. And they're firearms experts. You know, they get a lot of training and they're not people that you'll see doing things like you would see in, you know, movies that are just with no safety precautions at all. They are tending to be very careful and very safety conscious. But the, the risk that is in their blind spot is that they never think about how sometimes in an overwhelming time of stress or trauma, a firearm that was originally purchased for protection of their family, of their loved ones, um, can be turned to a weapon for self-destruction in the mindset. And that's the, the, the conversation we need to have in a culturally respectful way. Hmm. Are the majority of military or first responder suicides by firearm? Yes, that is the, the go-to method for, and you know, it's, it's so much more lethal than other means. And so researchers are, are right to put emphasis on this, but unfortunately what can happen is all of the words in the, in the world about how dangerous this is will fall on deaf ears if you don't have the right approach, you know, if you don't come in in a respectful, humble way. Um, lose your patient in terms of them dropping out of treatment or maybe otherwise. Oh, yeah. I, I think the point you made was that too many therapists try to talk about firearms far too early as if trying to assess some kind of danger before they've earned someone's trust. And it feels like to them, you're trying to take something away from me. You also said, and I didn't know this was a fact, but I had no clue 20 veterans die by suicide every day. Yeah, yeah, that's, you know, the latest data. Of course, that kind of thing is hard to get, but um, we've lost more to suicide than to combat in the modern wars. Um, so it's a, it's a national crisis, but it's not just a veterans issue. It's now become an American issue, right? It's going to be something that all of us as healers, you, me, and many others are going to need to come, come together and really understand. So let's talk for a second about, well, about therapy, what really helps. And you've come up with a model that I just found fascinating, and it's not reflective listening. You call it the SAW model, S-A-W, stands for Shame, Avoidance, and Withdrawal. 
And can you tell us the military basis for this? You again, you you pull from military language and experience, and something that soldiers and warriors can understand. Yeah, that was me really just optimizing something I had learned as a trauma psychologist. To be fair, so you know when I was trained in how to do trauma therapy, all of the different approaches that work mean that people have to approach what they fear and approach what they would rather not. But I felt like in a lot of the descriptions of it, we were really staying in the language and culture that we are taught as healers and as therapists. And so all that I did was really think about what's a good analogy that military service members understand and could lock it in for them. And a saw is a squad automatic weapon. It is a belt-fed machine gun, very powerful. All the infantry people and non-infantry, they would know what a saw is. Um, So it sits up on a tripod typically. And so using that concept, squad automatic weapon is a powerful weapon. I'm able to just translate the idea that shame is propped up by avoidance and withdrawal on the bottom of the tripod. So then the, the rationale for accelerating into discussions of what's at the root of the shame and really not avoiding it becomes a matter of something warriors do well, which is accelerate into challenge. If you can change it to that challenge is the hill for you to take and you'll be stronger in the end by virtue of approaching what you would rather avoid, it is a powerful way to restructure the whole purpose of therapy and really engage our patients. That's so interesting. You you use another term that is a military term. You call something a sniper attack. And what you're talking about are these unwelcome bursts of anger. Can you talk a little bit about that analogy? I thought I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that trauma does is it can make us feel like we're not even in control of our own bodies. Right. Right. So at a cellular level, if you feel like you can be ambushed or overrun by grief and trauma or have a panic attack, let's say there's a sexual assault. This is a little piece of what I added to this new edition. I'll give you a little, uh, little preview here. The sexual assault recovery process is so hard because people feel like they've been violated because they have and feel like they've lost control of their very bodies. And so they can have panic attacks and get triggered and just can't feel safe navigating the world. So treating that biological injury that's the result of trauma exposure can be a critical first step to treatment. Um, And it's part of my work now to really advance biological innovations that if you put them before the therapy allows you to get a totally different amount of traction with all of the therapy that you do after that. So you really stress doing body work first. Let's talk about when you get warriors or first responders into a situation where you want to use the most effective strategy. What have you found that constitutes that? Well, rather than a type of treatment, I have found a model for treatment, which is to address the biological stuff so they can get calm in their own body and then find out what their goals and values are. I think otherwise, so often we can come with a menu of options. They feel missed in that process. And bringing them home from their military time of service, whether they deployed or not, 
is about bringing them into a relationship where they feel seen and witnessed and understood. And so to go back to an earlier part of our conversation, when we go in with standard, you know, treatment protocols and questions that look for all the problems, challenges, diagnoses, deficits, it creates a relationship with them where they can feel like a number or passive recipient of treatment rather than really being empowered to go after um, personal growth. So you you use more of a group kind of setting so the soldiers have a bonding experience. Yeah, I find that groups are actually more powerful with veterans. If you seat a good dinner party, if you find the right people to put into that group and you shift in your relationship from being a one-on-one therapist trying to work them through trauma or shame, often when they get into a unit, they can um, they can give each other space and freedom from the shame and the guilt. And they become the moral authority in each other's lives to remove that burden. And so our relationship as healers shifts to a facilitating role rather than being the, as you said, the, the solution or the savior. It's just a different model. Huh. Wow. You know, um, it reminds me of EMDR in some ways, like the therapist is shifting out of a role where they're leading or like my wonderful interpretation is going to be what heals you. Instead, in EMDR, it's really your own mind. I like your word. You're facilitating growth. You're facilitating healing. You know, you also talked about letter writing, which is something I have people do a lot. And you ask the soldiers, the warriors, to write letters to someone. It could be their younger selves. It could be a soldier that was fallen or killed or killed themselves even. The recipient could be anyone or anything you wanted it to be. And then the next stage is to ask them to read those aloud to one another in the group. And I love this phrase you said. It becomes countercultural to take the easy path in the group. Yeah. The minute one of them walks point, meaning takes the first risk and shares their letter, I've never had anybody kind of drop out of a group. Once that happens, there's that uh, really good kind of peer pressure that helps people face directly the fox in their gut. And it's a really powerful treatment when done as a unit. Um, But I also did find that EMDR was very helpful. I was actually trained. I was the only one for a space of time that had that training, trained by a retired colonel. And um, he gave me the gift of trust and said, you may need to adapt some of this. And so, you know, go ahead and adapt it as you need to make it more um, helpful for your patients. So in the second edition of my book here, there's a section about adaptations I made to EMDR for the military and veteran population that have been really helpful for my patients. Anybody who's listened to self-work a lot knows what EMDR is, but let's just say it. EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing Therapy, and it's a therapy that has been found to be very good for trauma and for healing trauma. So that's what we're talking about. Doc, let's talk about grief again. You brilliantly, I think, describe what I've seen so often in people who are grieving. They experience um, this, what you call, burst of support. Can you talk about that? Yeah, the burst of support effect is not just with grief, it's with really any big change. If there's, you know, a new baby or a car accident or somebody 
develops a cancer diagnosis, then what tends to happen is we tend to kind of give the support all in one burst and then go back to our normal lives. And the problem with that is that with grief, it really comes in waves over a very long period of time. And often there's a delayed reaction so that people will experience the most biting symptoms of their grief when they're most alone. Cards are no longer coming and people are no longer checking in in, in with them. So it's just something we need to be aware of so that we can be intentional about changing if we want to support people who are traveling that grief journey. I know. The way I've thought about that in the past, because I guess I want to hang on to the idea that most human beings are actually trying to be decent and good, because certainly I've seen that support, that detachment, the tendency to support someone at the beginning, to be there for them, and then back way off. And I've wondered if it's about fear, fear of losing control, and and the fear becomes maybe I'm going to have to grieve and, and really withstand or work through that grief and it goes on for such a long time and I don't like thinking about that so I'm going to avoid that and just pretend that the person who got the divorce or whose partner died or was diagnosed with cancer or just came back from the war or whatever I'm going to say oh yeah they're okay they're doing fine you're right you're right it's about avoidance you know we live in a very um, death avoidant culture and a culture that doesn't even in, in therapy circles I find people are often um, reluctant and feel less than confident in their ability to walk with somebody in grief. Um, and I really got a lot of additional helpful insights and a really clear model for how to grieve uh, when I worked with Tragedy Assistance Program for Survivors. And so there are courses that were produced by the NFL um, Foundation through a company called Psych Armor that are free and available on uh, grief and trauma and how to walk through grief after suicide loss, and lots of topics that are free resources and may be of interest to some of your listeners. You know, thanks for mentioning the Psych Armor. I'll actually have that link in the show notes for people. That sounds like a great resource. Gosh, there, there's so much. I've got several things still on my list, but I'm going to focus on two things. One is, I, I don't really suggest that we go too theoretically into attachment, but what I would love for you to talk about is how you use the concept of attachment or secure, insecure, or avoidant attachment as a way of understanding. And by the way, you said you woke up at 3 o'clock and thought about this, <laughs> and I noticed in the book you're up a lot at 3 o'clock in the morning. I get some of my best ideas at 3 in the morning, but it's, it's uh, I wish I could sleep better. Honestly, I got a little concerned about you there, but but I'm going to repeat what, what you figured out at three o'clock in the morning. And again, I've already said this earlier. What vets die for is what they would live to protect. And I'm, I'm going to say that again. A vet may want to die for what they have lived to protect. And this led you to a ritual, which you suggest to people that I think could be very, very meaningful for anyone when they have darker thoughts or thoughts of harming themselves. Yeah, so that realization that warfighters and I think other people in our society will, would um, live for what they would die to protect in battle is really important. And around that insight has come you know, a whole project um, that's called the Warrior Box Project, where warfighters can take an ammo can and fill it up 
with things that are tangible symbols of why they stay in the fight, you know, the people and the values that they hold sacred. Um, and it can work with um, their ownership of firearms because what they can do is, um, you know, put a, um, a key to their firearm lock or safe, if they have one of those, at the bottom of all the things that they say they would live for. And so that it becomes a deterrent to taking themselves out. Again, I, I think this whole ritual would be something that anyone dealing with suicidal ideation would be moved by and hopefully stopped by the warrior box. The last thing that I would love for you to mention is, you, you know, you talk about suicide as, as consequent to three different things, perceived burden, thwarted belonging, plus capacity. And that's based on Thomas Joyner's uh, interpersonal theory of suicide. Oh, I was trying to give you credit for that. Credit for something that's not mine. Um, it's a really good explanatory model, I think. But what I added to it was to really map on to that model why I believe it's shame that's at the root of suicide more than depression. And how when we feel ashamed, you know, we act out in our relationships. We do damaging behaviors. Um, we withdraw. And so those central variables in Joyner's model, you know, the thwarted belongingness, that's consequent to withdrawing and feeling like you're unworthy of belonging, right? You know, so it just beautifully aligns with and maps onto a model that I've liked for a long time and really explains why when you have all of that perfect storm of stress going on and access to a firearm that's very lethal, it can be uh, turned to be a weapon for self-destruction from what its original intent for protection was meant to be. I so get it, yes, but I'd never heard it before. I'm going to read it again for our listeners. Perceived burden so that you feel your burden, that one I knew, plus thwarted belonging, like you don't, for some reason, something is getting in your way of feeling connected, you're more isolated, then the third is you have the capacity to actually take your own life. So a firearm or something that you have mm-hmm. is available to you that would kill you. Doc, this has been a wonderful time together. Is there anything else that you particularly want to say about the message of the book? I know you have a lot going on in the next little while. You have another edition of the book coming out, and self-work listeners would love to hear about that. Thanks. Yeah, that was the, actually the last thing I'd love to share is that in this new edition of the book, there's a few new things. I talk a little bit more about sexual assault and why that's such a difficult and complicated recovery journey. I really don't think trauma is trauma is trauma. People say that and they do now, but it's a different, uh, like multi-layered process of recovering with some traumas. I also included um, a lot of information about insights developed during this pandemic year that were perhaps from Warrior, but map on for all of us to understand how we navigate trauma. Uh, what does leadership look like? How do we lead ourselves through times of disruptive change? How do we deal with helpless um, rage around the losses we've all seen in our jobs, our relationships, our ability to socialize, and so forth? And then there's also a bunch of new exercises in the book. And those are designed largely to help forge a deeper working trust between patients, any patients, and healers. Um, so those are the big kind of updates that really made me want to expand my book warrior and and re-release it 
Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful for the opportunity to come on and talk with you about some of the content of the book from before and now. And it's coming you know, I, I want to stress to listeners that it may have sounded like this book was for therapists, or I may have made it sound like that, but it's not really. It's a book for the general public. Reading it as a therapist was very interesting, but it holds so many ideas and recommendations and suggestions for anyone who's been in the military, who is a warrior, who is a first responder, or for family members and loved ones of those folks. And actually just for all of us to try to understand what these people who put themselves in so much danger are facing. Yeah, I'm a psychologist, but I would have found this book interesting and really helpful to read in many, many ways because we all know someone who's gone through or who's going through trauma. And and as you said before, we've all been in a pandemic. We've all had our own fair share of trauma. I heard someone say the other day, you know, we're all in the same ocean, but some of us have boats that are better built. But it is the same ocean. I want to thank you so much for your time. I've loved talking with you. And, you know, this is Memorial Day weekend. And so this will be listened to then, but I'm sure it'll be listened to by a lot of people who are looking for answers. I so appreciate your wisdom. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you for having me. I hope Doc Springer's interview has made your Memorial Day even more special. I also want to let you know that I'm featuring Danica Thomas on Sunday with a second series of Careers That Kill. So we're doing double episodes of self-work here on Memorial Day weekend. So tune in on Sunday. Also, just to remind you, I created a course on depression, and Perfectly Hidden Depression is a part of that, for Himalaya.com. And if you go to Himalaya.com slash depression, you'll find it. And if you use that link and the promo code OVERCOMING, then you can get two weeks free before you have to pay for any of their multiple presenters and teachers. Just wanted to remind you of that. Have a great weekend. Thanks for being here as always. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.